At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am only a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before, and no one like you shall arise after you. This is the word of the Lord. On the way home from worship today, I turned to my husband in the car and I asked him, Joseph, after the Boston Avenue choir sings, do you think the angels weep for the beauty of it or do you think they dance? I have taught Sunday school many times here and love teaching Sunday school, and I'm always warned by the class president that at 10.30 sharp, the choir will pop up and go practice. And I must say that typically as the Sunday school teacher, I'm a little bit sad, but as the worship preacher, I'm thrilled. (laughs) So thank you. I also want to clarify that I am Dr. Northcutt. I am not Dr. Susan Pensiero. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for the astounding thinkers who dreamed this church into being. We thank you for the founders of this series and God for every voice that has been lifted in the 46 years. We praise you. We give you thanks. And now we ask that you will attend to me, God, that I might speak a word for you. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we express the inexpressible God? The unutterable, the ineffable, infinite, wordless word that is God. The history of literature is cluttered with human grasping, trying to express the inexpressible in visions, imagination, images, but especially words. Words come tumbling out of us from the psalmist to the mystics to all the preachers that have preached in this beautiful sanctuary, to my seminarians, papers and ideas and sermons, we labor, all of us, to give word to the inexpressible. But there are no words. Like when my goddaughter, 
at the time five-year-old Amanda Madigan played her violin for worship for the first time in her entire five years. When Amanda finished playing all creatures of our God and King for the special music, she returned to her seat where her mother noticed Amanda was trembling. Her mother leaned over and whispered, Were you nervous? No, Mama. This is not nervous. This is God. Rather asked several more questions, wanting to know more about this experience of God that Amanda had that had left her trembling. And Amanda Madigan, all 37 pounds of her, drew herself up, looked her mother in the eye and said, Mama, there are no words. What do we do? When there are no words to express this God who causes us to tremble. We hold the ones we love a little more closely. We weep. We dance. We surrender to the wordless word. And we tremble. Spiritual teachers tell us that the experience my goddaughter Amanda had that day, her moment of being utterly met by God, is an apophatic, how's that for a $10,000 seminary word, (laughs) is an apophatic experience of God, to be utterly filled with God and yet without words. Sacramental theologian Karl Rahner wrote persuasively what I think we all know in the marrow of our bones. We are more open to an apathetic experience of God when we are children. But experiences of God are not always ecstatic. They are not always infused with a sweet, aching fulfillment. Take, for example, those times in the wee hours of the morning, say 3 or 4 a.m., when you find yourself wide awake, as if you had been startled, but not by an audible sound. When God calls us in the middle of the night, we don't hear God so much with our bodily ears, as Teresa of Avila said, but with our interior ear, the ear that connects heart and mind and soul and strength. God does wake people up. Many have noted this as one of God's less endearing habits. <laughs> In those wee hours of the morning, when we lie wide awake, hearts pounding, fears pinning us to our mattresses. You know, when you go to the dentist and they drape that lead apron over you, it is as if there are 20 of them piled on top of you in your bed, your mind crowded with worries for your children, your grandchildren, your stepchildren, your parents, your goddaughters. Then escalate to worries about job security, health insurance, even our own churches. And when without bidding, our hearts take flight to Darfur, to Iraq, to Afghanistan, to those 5,000 orphans from 9-11. 
to the millions orphaned from HIV and AIDS across the world, and then our restless hearts return here, and they begin walking the hospital halls where those we know and love are ill. We be going through our petitionary prayer list. We list them by name. And like the psalmist, we discover that our pillow is wet with our tears. Is that God? Is God in that? Yes. God wakes us up in the middle of the night with an invitation just like in the Garden of Gethsemane toward which we are walking now in Lent. When Jesus said to his disciples, wait with me just a little while. God wakes us up to wait a little while with those who are kneeling at the heart of suffering that moment. This middle-of-the-night experience of God, unlike Amanda's apathetic experience of God, more resembles what spiritual teachers call cataphatic, cataphatic experience. There are words, plenty of them, pouring out of us, but we feel empty and we feel desolate. We know desolation. And yes, God is in it, not causing it, but waking us up to wait a little while. There's another reason, quite a different reason, that God wakes us up beyond asking us to wait a little while. God also wakes us up very often when God needs to issue to us a vocational call, a call that is to where our purpose on earth meets also God's purposes for this world. Maybe the middle of the night, after all, is God's last resort. As we have brilliantly organized time for God out of our daily lives. Sure, we're church musicians, we're pastors, we're professors, we're business folks, attorneys, stay-at-home parents, and deeply committed lay folk, but... Though we may work for God and sing for God, though we may show up for God on Sundays and teach for God, it's been a very, very long time since we made room for God. Poor God. This problem of failing to clear space and make room for God in our lives is as old as Scripture itself. In fact, it takes us right back to Advent when the Incarnation had a really difficult time finding a place to be born. Can the people say, Amen? Poor God, my mom would lament. One of my mother's more eccentric theological bents was that of pouring over dozens of church letters Each month, church newsletters, searching for evidence of God, as she put it. (laughs) If in the course of the newsletter, God had been ignored in favor of church programs and rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, as my mother put it. 
Mom would take her indelible black ink pen and write, Poor God, at the top of the newsletter. It was always followed by a railroad track of exclamation points. She then tucked all those newless letters into the mail to me, <laughs> warning me against godless preaching and godless church. Theologian Douglas John Hall says that whenever we give in to this cultural boosterism, this rah-rah, sis-boom-bah theology, we are no longer living the gospel, and we are no longer learning God. So this poor God wakes us out of a deep sleep, guiding us from sis boom ba, prodding us toward our vocation, prodding us toward God's usefulness for us in this world. So God wakes us up in the middle of the night. In the deep silence of this night, perhaps, with only the sound of a dripping faucet or your baby's sweet breaths breathing in and breathing out, or maybe the refrigerator humming is what keeps you company at night, listen with the ear of your heart. Speak, God. Your servant is listening. God woke Solomon up in the middle of the night. Solomon's call, like Samuel's and Jacob's and so many others, occurs at night in a dream. But at the same time, Solomon's call story is unlike any other call story that we have. When God called Abram, God told Abram what to do. And Moses, too. When God called Moses, God gave Moses a job description in no uncertain terms. Moses knew exactly what he was to do. When God called Samuel, God called and told Samuel what to do. But when God calls Solomon, rather than telling Solomon what to do, God commands Solomon, Ask me. Ask me for what you need. This doesn't sound like the God that we've known through Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel. The God we find in 1st Kings has a new M.O. God is trying a new approach, and who could blame God? Ask what I should give you, God exhorts Solomon. Well, we all know the right answer if a genie asks, what should I give you? Three more wishes. But when God asks Solomon, ask what I should give you, it's a pop quiz of wisdom. Solomon, in today's text, we think was about 20 years old, responsible for all of Israel's governing. Imagine a 20-year-old making a bid for the presidency of the United States. 
unbelievably, instead of acting like he knew more than he did, Solomon quickly admits to God all that Solomon does not know. I don't even know how to come in and go out. Or as a lady from the southern state might say, that poor boy does not know which end is up. (laughs) So Solomon asks, we read, and Dr. Biggs read so beautifully for us tonight, Solomon asks for an understanding mind. At least that's how our new revised Standard Version Bibles translate what Solomon asked for. But the Hebrew words that Solomon asked for literally are Lev Shomea. Lev Shomea. A literal translation? Listening heart. Solomon asked God for a listening heart. Solomon has an impossible job description. He has more worries than he can think of in one night. He doesn't ask for help. He doesn't ask for rescue. He does not ask for relief. He asks for a listening heart. When we hear the word heart, we often translate it like a Hallmark moment or movie. (laughs) When someone tells a preacher, you really moved my heart today, preacher, it usually means a moist tanky was involved. (laughs) Tears have been shed. That's what we moderns mean when we say heart. We mean that we felt something like my Amanda felt when she was filled with God. In the ancient Hebrew language of Solomon's time, body parts do, in fact, represent feelings. The nose represents anger. Did you ever see an angry person's nostrils flare? My seventh grade Sunday school teacher's nostrils could get really big. (laughs) The right arm means strength. Think how often we read in the Psalms that God upholds us with the right arm. That's the strong one. It will never get tired. But even though parts of the body have meaning for the Israelites, heart is not the equivalent understanding of merely love. It is also will intention, feelings, thoughts, strength, and will all reside in the ancient understanding of heart. God does wake us up out of a deep sleep to ask, ask what I should give you. You might want to answer a listening heart. Before surrendering to my vocational call to pastoral ministry and preaching, I was a professional pianist. I was living in Tennessee, of all places, where I taught piano lessons to impoverished Appalachian kids for a federal enrichment program designed to show children living in poverty how many possibilities there were in this world, starting with music and the piano. 
None of my students had a piano at home. None of them had running water at home. None of them had a heat source except for a wood-burning stove. And that year, the fragrance of wood smoke became a fragrance I so loved. It was in all of their clothes when they came to play. Sometimes their mamas or daddies would carry them to church, as they put it, to practice playing on a real piano. The church had a piano, but typically there was no practicing the piano in between the weekly lessons I provided. And, oh, my students' progress was heartbreakingly slow. Except, except for Becky. Six weeks into music lessons, Becky came in, sat down at the school's piano, and played a Bach minuet perfectly. The music was pouring out of this child. It wasn't just that the notes were right. She was making music. I asked, did your daddy carry you to church to practice? No, ma'am. My daddy came up here to the school and looked at the piano, and he made me a play piano on cardboard that I stretch out across my mama's table and practice on. It took me a few seconds to visualize what she was telling me, that she practiced on an imitation cardboard keyboard that she unfolded like a map on her mother's table. Dumbfounded, I asked. So, Becky, if you can't actually hear the notes you're playing, if the play piano doesn't actually make a sound when your fingers play, how, how exactly did you learn this minuet? I learned it by heart, ma'am. The week before, I had played that minuet on the school's piano for Becky, showing her what it sounded like. Becky had listened carefully, committing it to that remarkable, powerful place that the ancient Hebrew people called the heart. Becky had learned it from the inside out, using her heart, her mind, her soul, and her strength. I learned it by heart, ma'am. The next time God wakes you up in the middle of the night, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, is a good response. And if it seems that God is asking, wait with me a little while, Pray with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. For God has asked you to sit at the heart of all who suffer that night. But if God wakes you up and asks, What do you need me to give you? Ask for a listening heart. And with the wisdom you receive, won't you please guide us 